Great, so welcome back everyone. And it's good to be back, uh, good to be back with the group. Uh, we're about uh, a year from the killing, indeed the, the murder of George Floyd. And, you know, a year away from really massive demonstrations um, in the U.S. and, in fact, uh, throughout the world, you know, very much, I think, in France as well, I remember, and uh, in other countries. And some people reflect that this time really opened up what's sometimes been called a moral reckoning. And a lot of observers have said that, that the energy for that may have, may have cooled some. In the, in the last year. Uh, but it seems clear that there's still this very, what, um, possible facing of a lot of the suffering or dukkha of the past, particularly related to, uh, related to race. Uh, some of you may remember the young woman named Bree Newsom, who went up the uh, flagpole in uh, South Carolina uh, and took down the Confederate flag. And she said, our nation faces a fork in the road. And probably this is true of other countries as well, because a lot is coming to light, I know, in Canada and you know, France, Britain, other places. Our nation faces a fork in the road and a decision to either continue down the same path of systemic racism or to confront our past our past honestly. And I also thought in that context of uh, James Baldwin, who said, not everything that is faced can be changed, but nothing can be changed until it is faced. So I think that's true socially, that's true uh, personally as well. And probably many of you have uh, gone more deeply in the last year and, and for me, it's been, it's been significant as well that uh, uh, a year ago in June, some of you probably were here, I gave two talks uh, at Spirit Rock on the theme of Buddhist practice and transforming racism. And so I was interested in seeing what we've learned or what the perspectives are. And for me, it's also gone further. I was invited to give a series of talks um, to another community, actually, in um, Tucson, Arizona. I gave four talks on this topic in the fall last year and at other communities as well. And more recently, in April and May, I, I led a five-day retreat just for people racialized as white people for on the theme of uh, Buddhist practice and transforming racism. And, and actually... Um, uh, have been asked to work with a with the board and staff of a retreat center on this theme for uh, a retreat that's coming up very soon for three days. So it's been something that's been um, quite important to me. That, that and so I basically wanted to uh, structure this talk by sharing sort of nine reflections on what I've learned. Well, that's what I, that's how I want to structure this. I want to give nine reflections on what I've learned and um, then do a little bit of writing at the end. 
and then then have a have a discussion. So it's um, very much on the theme of working with our own conditioning, our own behavior and action as part of um, Buddhist practice, as part of our practice, not an add-on, but it's really an integral part. And I think it's it's helpful in beginning, you know, I think I did this a year ago, also just to say something about my own background and my own you know, situatedness, you know, in approaching this topic, you know, that um, maybe two things are significant that come to mind particularly is that I, I, I grew up in uh, Maryland near Washington, D.C., and there was a structure of, you know, community, which is quite similar, probably other, other parts of the U.S., where there was actually a segregated a black community, then a railroad tracks, then a uh, basically poor whites recently come from Appalachia, and then more of a working class uh, neighborhood. And that was where my family lived, you know, mostly working class neighborhood. And so, but we all went to school together. So I grew up uh, going to school uh, with, uh, with black kids, becoming friends, you know, playing with them and so forth. Uh, the other significant part of my own background is that I'm of uh, Jewish ancestry, although my parents didn't really raise us religiously, but that didn't prevent uh, receiving a certain amount of stuff coming at me. And, you know, and uh, there were, I received a certain amount of anti-Semitism, particularly when, you know, particularly in my first, you know, until I went off to college. It wasn't real harsh or intense, but it was there, you know, and, you know, it would be called names at times, negative names, and was treated sometimes uh, as an other. I was also aware that uh, uh, my father faced quite a bit of that, was not able to go to the college he wanted to go to, and was not able to go to medical school because they had quotas against Jewish people, which, which kept, were kept. It's not widely known, but they were there until the early 1960s in the U.S., right? And uh, I've heard it said that the quotas on very limited numbers of Jews going into medical school are the reason why, for that generation, there were a very, very large number of Jewish pharmacists. I don't know if that's been your experience, <laughs> but that's part of, the, part of the history. Anyway, so I wanted just to... Uh, share some of that. I could say more about my own background. I just wanted to share those uh, those two pieces. Okay, so I want to go through these uh, nine points. And the first one really, uh, I think really is, uh, yeah, the, the first is, I think, really, really important. That uh, it's really crucial to uh, connect our Buddhist practice with uh, this um, intention to transform racism inside us and, and outside. And I think maybe like, like some of you, my experience has been that even in uh, Buddhist settings, that kind of integration is not very mature. It's actually, typically I've experienced even at Spirit Rock and at East Bay Meditation Center in Oakland, 
generally, we uh, the people who want to work with uh, issues of race and racism and whiteness and so forth generally bring in more secular, progressive social justice material, and there's not a very clear integration with Buddhist practice. And so one of the things which has been really crucial for me is to really have that integration because actually it there is it's more like a dialogue that there are uh, maybe issues and limits with Buddhist practice, but there are also issues and limits with what we find in Western social justice approaches, right? That there are limit, and then the dialogue can be rich. This is something what I've generally found over 30 years or so with what we sometimes call socially engaged Buddhism, that the dialogue is really crucial. And it's not very different from maybe what happened in China or Japan where Buddhism went there, and there were dialogues, we could say, with the uh, really dominant local traditions. In China, that would have been the uh, Confucian and the Taoist traditions, and out of that centuries-long dialogue came what we call Zen, which is quite different from what we find in India. So I think we can find this in different countries, that, you know, that they're, they're you know, it's not like an integration with... Uh, with important uh, approaches and traditions in the uh, culture, which, as it were, receives Buddhist practice. I think that's occurring also with Western psychology, as I mentioned. But I think it's really crucial to happen in, um, in, in terms of looking at racism and looking at, uh, you know, the a lot of the tools are very, very helpful. A lot of the approaches which have been developed so far by Buddhist teachers like Ruth King and Rhonda McGee have focused a lot on developing mindfulness, really using the tool of mindfulness just to notice your own minds. What's going on? What's my conditioning like? What's going on? And in the uh, retreat that I taught, we used the uh, framework that's a traditional Buddhist training framework that we train in wisdom, we train in meditation, and we train in ethics or action, how we act. And we really try to have that uh, integration be very, very uh, developed, you know, so that there's, um, you know, so that we really say, okay, what does it mean to go into this territory and have a commitment to metta? to uh, the open heart, the wise heart, you know, and we can uh, find, you know, passages like from the Buddha, very relevant. Uh, hatred never ends through hatred. By love alone does it end. This is an ancient truth. That's from the Dhammapada, verse number five. Or that we have an ethical commitment that's expressed. Here are just a few passages. We abandon violence in respect to all beings both those which are still and those which move. Let one not destroy life, nor cause others to destroy life, and not approve as well as of others killing. These are like the uh, very basic ethical commitments that we take as part of our practice. And, you know, part of what's sometimes happened with Buddhist practice as it developed in the West is that we focus so much on meditation that we don't bring in the ethical dimension, which is very, very crucial, certainly in the traditional context. 
you know, and so that's, that's a danger in the way that we focus so much on meditation, that we want to come back to, to ethics and, um, and, and look at that. Um, you know, this is from Dr. King. It is as much a moral obligation to refuse to cooperate with wrong and evil as it is to cooperate with good. So that's, again, really focusing on the ethical component. So that's the first reflection, that that integration is uh, really crucial. And a second is that it's very helpful, and this is, this is more a perspective, uh, not so much coming from Buddhist practice, that's very helpful to have a very broad view of the different dimensions of, of racism. Typically, it's thought about as terms of individual attitudes, particularly of nasty people, right? But it can be helpful to see that there are individual dimensions related to race and racism. There are uh, interpersonal and relational dimensions, and there are more institutional and systemic dimensions. So uh, racism really has a meaning in all of those, that individually we, all of us, internalize the stuff of the society. Everyone does. doesn't matter who you are, you know. Some of you may have heard a story uh, from uh, Archbishop uh, Desmond Tutu from uh, South Africa, you know, a uh, great leader. And he said he noticed once he was on a flight coming from Central Africa, he noticed there were two black pilots and there was turbulence later in the flight. And he, he noticed himself thinking, I hope they have, I hope they're good enough, right? And he said, whoa, you know, what's that about, right? And, you know, they're, they're very similar stories. So the conditioning is taken in by everyone, right? And, you know, when people have done studies, they find that the conditioning is there for all members of society. That, you know, as we know, uh, we intern even, you know, we internalize even the negative views about ourselves. That, uh, you know, women internalize uh, patriarchy or, you know, or... Uh, gay and lesbian and so forth people internalize homophobia, right? It's, uh, and black people internalize anti-black racism. And it's just, it's just how it works, right? And so, uh, so that's, that's important. So there's that individual level uh, of our own attitudes, our own internalization, their interpersonal dimensions for how we may act and so forth. And then, you know, maybe most significantly, there are the collective levels. There are the ways that a given institution manifests or does not manifest uh, racism. And most, most specifically, we have all the different core social institutions like housing and uh, education and uh, medical care and policing and uh, jobs and... Uh, uh, education and so forth. And there we can see, you know, very uh, systemically how racism occurs in all those areas. I think probably most of you are, qu are quite familiar with that, but it's helpful to distinguish the levels because we're not just talking about nasty views that are expressed in public by one person, right? It's, it goes way beyond that. And I think the institutional dimensions are particularly uh, crucial. That's my second point. Third point is 
this really follows from the uh, first point that there's really an invitation. It's not just in relation to racism, but in addition, in relation to all sorts of other things, there's an invitation to have a broader sense of practice. You know, to, you know, again, there, there makes, it makes some sense when we're first starting practice just to focus on me sitting in meditation for 20 minutes a day. That makes sense. At a certain point, maybe more intermediate or advanced place, we really want to bring our practice to all the parts of our lives. You know, that this is about awakening, and it's awakening in all the parts of our lives. So we want to bring our practice, as it were, off the cushion. You know, can I, can I, this is again where the ethical component comes in very strongly, where skillful speech comes in. Can I be, have a sense of uh, being right in the middle of my practice when I have uh, difficult discussions with people, right? When I'm, uh, or when I have easy discussions with people, can I be present? Can I have a sense of being present when I'm talking or listening? I sometimes mention that uh, part of my practice in teaching is to be connected with my body as I'm talking. You can also stay present to yourselves as you're listening. You have the easier job. <laughs> Right, you, it's easier for you. It's, uh, but uh, that can be a practice. You know, I, I mentioned sometimes that person, uh, John Travis, who was really important mentor for me for about four years, when I was first starting to do more uh, teaching at Spirit Rock and elsewhere, he said, uh, he said, do your preparation, and then be aware of your belly. Be aware of your heart, be aware of your body, and let your thoughts self-organize. <laughs> right? So you can try that sometime. It, it, was, it was a good challenge. So uh, that, you know, that's one example of the sense of broadening the practice. So, but even uh, more importantly, maybe we're not, I shouldn't say that, but in addition, um, we really want to ask... Uh, where does looking at our social conditioning come in? And I want to suggest that we can have a broader sense of practice that includes, as part of my practice, looking at my social conditioning, maybe around race, around gender, around age, all sorts of things, physical ability. We could go down the list, right? Sexual orientation. What are my attitudes? Do I notice that I have uh, conditioning there that I want to work with? You know, and, you know, for me, that's been striking sometimes to see sometimes people who are very esteemed as teachers who seem to have uh, not worked through their social conditioning. You know, I remember reading about uh, one of the great uh, Japanese Zen teachers who, you know, uh, was one of the early teachers who transmitted Zen to the West. Uh, Yasutani Roshi, he was older. And so he was, you know, an adult for much of the time that there was, uh, we could say, uh, uh, fascism in Japan, you know, up to the Second World War. And he, he actually took on anti-Semitic views that were in, and published views on this, you know. And how do we make sense of that? You know, I would like to think that fully awakening or moving towards awakening means that we... Uh, 
try to work with all of our conditioning. I think what I'm suggesting is that there's a broader sense of awakening that we may have in which and that is connected with a broader sense of practice. Does that make some sense to you? That we'd want to get it all, all of our stuff, not just part of it, right? So it's more ambitious, but it really points to, uh, uh, in some ways, the need for a further set of practices. I think this is also could be applicable to our psychological conditioning. That's why I've been interested in developing a lot of practices related to transforming the judgmental mind, which gets right at a lot of psychological conditioning. And then in some ways, I, I integrate material from Western psychology about all the stuff that we kind of take on when we're kids, right? Early childhood conditioning. Does anyone not have early childhood conditioning that's in fact, that influences your life? Anyone not have any of that? Okay, so it's a lot, right? So, so I think it's really what it, in sum, what this is pointing to, it's only we can say it almost uh, a little bit paradoxically that our sense of awakening evolves historically. That awakening may mean something different in our time than it meant 2,500 years ago because we're identifying what are the forms of our conditioning that we want to work through. You know, even if the deepest awakening is not different, I would say. You know, but what we do to get there, all the different uh, parts of our conditioning uh, that we need to work on, uh, I think we're just identifying different dimensions. You know, the, the Buddha, you know, inter very interestingly, did criticize the caste system very, very clearly right, in India at his time, and he didn't permit it with inside his own community. So this was part of his teaching as well. But I think, I think this third point I'm making is that we uh, really, I think, are moving towards a broader sense of practice, a broader sense of awakening that really uh, brings forth the need for developing new forms of practice that can complement the beautiful forms of practice that we may already use, the, the mindfulness practice, the loving-kindness practice, you know, and so forth. So that's my fourth point. Third point, sorry. I remember once I was going to a talk by the Dalai Lama, and he said he had five points. And he went, he went from the second to the fourth point and skipped the third. And then he said, oops, I skip the third point. Make big mistake. Ha 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 ha. You know, sorry if I'm getting doing the accent in a funny way. But anyway, uh, so I'm, I'm on my fourth point. So the fourth point is um, that what I found, and this is particularly in doing work with people, because I've, uh, you know, with the retreat that I did on working with transforming racism, I've, I, think, I don't know if I mentioned, but I, people in the retreat who were interested I've, I'm doing also a five-session uh, group that's taking place over about 10 weeks in which we're continuing. So the fourth point is that when we go into this territory related to race and racism and whiteness, we really have a need for guidelines and agreements. It's a messy territory often. It's charged often. People want to see themselves as good people and so forth. 
And we really need to have ways of talking together in which there can be honesty, but also relative safety. So generally speaking, it can be, it's probably most skillful to look into, uh, particularly in any ongoing group or a retreat, to have, uh, to have everyone have more or less similar conditioning. That's what I did for the retreat and for the groups. We have, it was just people who were racialized as white people, you know, and so similarity of conditioning can permit a certain safety, but it's also helpful to have guidelines. In the retreat, we took about 90 minutes to develop a group of guidelines that gave us relative safety that we could all agree on. There were ones like really avoiding any uh, shaming or blaming of other people, uh, try to um, keep mindfulness as you're talking and as you're listening, have inner and outer awareness, treat everyone as much as possible with respect, um, you know, know that it's a difficult territory and have compassion and empathy. Uh, you can have empathy towards someone and still disagree. And so there were, there were guidelines like that. Um, you know, confidentiality obviously was, was a big one. And so I, what I've seen in a number of groups that I've been in where they don't have guidelines, where the groups haven't had guidelines and agreements, they can often get really turn into a disaster, right? Or just really have problems. So that's the fourth reflection that I've had that some care in going into a difficult territory, and it wouldn't have to be just with race and racism, any territory that's charged. In fact, these guidelines are good to have in general, right? Have them within your family. See if your family's interested in guidelines. Yeah. Okay, so you can see. So that's my, that's my fourth point. Um, the fifth point, well, I hope I get through all nine and have plenty of discussion. I may have to rush some of them. But the, the fifth point is that what I found is really the importance of knowing history particularly knowing the history of race and racism and whiteness. And this is something I talked about a year ago, but it's been really powerful for me to personally to learn a lot more of the history, you know, particularly to learn that uh, race and whiteness and blackness were inventions. You know, they are constructions. They haven't always existed. They're not eternal. In fact, they were, they were invented at the end of the 17th century in what's now the US. They were, in, invested, they were invented in uh, colonial Virginia and Maryland, especially to start with. And they came in a very interesting historical moment where it was really clear that these constructions were developed by the uh, the economic elites, the planters, and you can find this documented in some of the records, they were developed to actually have a kind of divide and conquer strategy. What had happened was that, you know, in the uh, colonies, let's say in Virginia, in the mid 17th century, everyone was working together in the fields and you didn't have a notion of white and black. There wasn't a concept of race. There were people who were called slaves and they were working 
right next to people who were called indentured servants, who were mostly from England, but some from other European countries. There's a whole backstory there. But they, they, their lives were not all that dissimilar. They didn't have freedom of movement. They lived together. Slaves could become free. Uh, they could be freed. They could buy their freedom. And their lives, according to the historians I've read, were not hugely different. And in fact, they intermarried. And they, uh, you know, both when they became free and when they were actually still in those roles. And it was not anything like what it later became. Slavery was not hereditary. Uh, there were plenty of people of African descent who were free, who could vote, who, had, who owned land and so forth at that time. Partly because they were, had very, very similar lives, they also several times engaged in rebellions against the rulers because they didn't like the conditions. The largest of these was in 1676, and some of you may know this, it was called Bacon's Rebellion. And there's a, there's a very good book by Jack Willen Battalora called The Invention of the White Race, I think it's called, um, or the, the Birth of a White Nation, that's what it's called. It's sort of an allusion to the D.W. Griffith film of 1915, A Birth of a Nation. It was, it's called Birth of a White Nation, and she gives a wonderful 35-minute summary on YouTube. So in the last years, I give more YouTube references in my talks. Anyway, uh, so if you want to get a, a really quick overview of that history, go to YouTube, look for Birth of a White Nation, Jack Will and Bad Laura. There's a book of that title, too. A lot of what I know comes from those sources. So there was a rebellion in 1676, and it was you know, there were people we would now call black, people we would now call white. They were together. They did not see themselves as fundamentally different. There was not, there were not negative attitudes at that time as far, you know, anything like what later developed. The uh, rebellion was eventually defeated and the rulers saw that this, uh, these coalitions of people who were working was very dangerous. And so they decided quite explicitly to say that the responsibility for the rebellion was that of the people of African descent, started to say that these are dangerous people. That's when you start seeing the word white come into being, only at that time. And they started having laws in which the uh, categories got much more rigid. Uh, people now called blacks uh, could no longer um, could no longer be free, could no longer vote. There could no longer be intermarriage. There were a series of laws over about the next twenty years. Slavery became hereditary. Uh, slave patrols began, and they put the poor whites in control of these. So they created cer certain privileges, not many. And even though this is all a construction, it you know, it, um, it gained force and it became, uh, it became the dominant social structure. And we can see this, kind of, I, I, I and other people call it a divide and conquer strategy. And we can see that this is really at the origin of whiteness and race and blackness in what's now the United States.
And it's, you know, so it's a construction that took on force and eventually everyone believes in it, even though it's just totally a construction, right? It's had tremendous, uh, hor horrific results. But I find it kind of very freeing to know that how this happened and how it was a, how it was a, a construction that occurred for specific reasons. And you can also see historically when you look that at various times in history, when there was interracial solidarity, what we would now call interracial solidarity, in the time after the Civil War in Reconstruction, in the time of the populist movement in the 1890s, in the 1930s, in the Civil Rights Movement, those movements were always followed by divide-and-conquer strategies. You know, uh, after Reconstruction, it was Jim Crow. You know, after the Civil Rights Movement, it was what we call uh, dog whistle politics. Do you know that term? You know, of, you know, virtually all the presidents, starting with Nixon, would use terms to sort of divide and conquer yeah, and move away from the Civil Rights Movement. You know, terms like law and order or the war on drugs or the end of welfare as we know it from Clinton. It wasn't just Republicans. You know, and you can see this on a very, very large scale with the last president, right? So does that make some sense? Can you see that historically, right? So I find it really, really helpful to know that because you, you can, all of a sudden the veils are parted and you can see how it's a whole system that's being manipulated, right? So that's, that for me, uh, knowing that history is really, really crucial and also merges again, with the Buddha's critique of the caste system as only a construction. And, you know, although the Buddha didn't try to dismantle the caste system within what we now call India, he did dismantle it within his own community, within anyone who was practicing in the community. So that's my, that's my fifth point. That's, that for me is the importance of history. For me, that gives a lot of hope because it was constructed and it can be deconstructed, right? It's not some eternal thing which goes back 10,000 years, right? So that's, for me, that's, that's, that's hopeful. That's something I've learned more. Uh, the sixth point, and I'll try to be brief with these. Uh, one of the implications of Buddhist practice in being integrated with work on racism is that inner work plays a very large role, plays a very significant role. And we don't see this generally in, in many of the social justice movements. We see it in some, anything that is religiously grounded, you know, maybe like the civil rights movement in the 50s and 60s had a very strong basis in the black church, as well as with uh, uh, people of other religious uh, affiliations. And so there was an inner dimension. There was, there was prayer and there was so forth. But uh, for people doing Buddhist practice, uh, mindfulness plays a very large role. Look into your conditioning. Set an intention to notice how your mind's working with certain stimuli. You can also deliberately go into this territory. One practice you could do is watch a video or look at the news that goes into some charged territory related to race or racism. Watch your mind. That could be a 10-minute daily practice that people do, you know, something like that, you know, and, and that things work, you know, bring mindfulness. Uh, a second practice is really working with the heart practices. 
working with uh, compassion, working with uh, metta, really have uh, really crucial, I think crucial in a lot of different ways, to really uh, attend to what are, you know, read the newspaper headlines that are painful and respond with compassion practice. I think really crucial to help uh, burnout, avoid burnout, I should say, not help burnout, uh, but to help avoid it, to, uh, uh, to work with it, you know, and I'm, I'm being very brief here, I could go into much more depth. Uh, a third uh, inner work is working with difficult emotions when they arise, you know, the different kinds of emotional pain, grief or sadness or anger or, um, you know, despair or overwhelm or whatever, that, you know, bringing these, you know, into our mindfulness practice really, really crucial. And then a fourth area, which is more challenging and still being developed, is to work with uh, where there's trauma. And I think that there are elements of trauma probably for almost all of us. They manifest in different ways. But what I've seen, particularly in mixed groups, I've seen, I've been in a lot of situations where I've seen groups with people from different ethnic groups sometimes get really stuck. And the whole situation feels sometimes like a vast trauma field. Everyone is kind of traumatized and people are, you know, and, and I, I interpret trauma as sort of a dysregulation of the nervous system, you know, where people are kind of, their nervous systems are highly activated. And I've seen this with people called white, I've seen it with people called uh, black, other ethnic groups. And a lot of times when that trauma takes over, everything breaks down, you can't go anywhere. And so doing inner work, and I think even some group work with trauma is really crucial. You know, people are getting clearer on how there's a kind of ancestral trauma that many of us share, even if we're, you know, even if we're called white people. You know, if you think of an example, something like, do you remember that situation in uh, Central Park in New York with uh, Amy Cooper and the, uh, the black man who was uh, a bird watcher? People remember that story? You know, and she she got really, really scared when he asked her to uh, uh, keep her dog on a leash. And she called the police, right? You know, there was objectively no danger or threat, but something in her was getting incredibly, I would say, getting really dysregulated. She was in a kind of a trauma zone and she couldn't be in her right mind. And she, you know, and then, you know, and then the sort of uh, the whole history of race and racism manifest, right, in that example. So that's the sixth point. Inner work plays a really uh, crucial role. The seventh point is to find your ways uh, to act locally and maybe in groups, and especially see if you can find maybe in a work situation or your community or in other ways find ways to engage in what we might call multiracial solidarity. I think that's really much of the hope for us is to uh, engage more and more that way. So to have one's action. I have people I work with who are in such work in different places, um, mostly in the U.S. And it's, uh, I think it's really a crucial way to go to have ways of working across different uh, ethnic groups. And I think eventually that's necessary 
to for this transformative work to happen. And again, one can benefit from knowing the history that this has happened so many times, you know, historically. My my I think I don't know if I've mentioned some of you knew my mom. She used to come on Wednesdays. She died five years ago. And my mom devoted about, you know, I don't know, 25 years of her life to this kind of work, you know, in particular, you know, both in rural Maryland when they lived there, and then they, she later moved to uh, Richmond, Virginia, and, and did, you know, I think some of you know, she did 10 years of work on issues of race and racism in the uh, Richmond public schools when they were going through uh, court order desegregation. So in a way, I've, I've been inspired a lot by her. Her name is Bernice. That's the seventh point. Look for ways to find sort of multiracial uh, groups and uh, multiracial solidarity. Number eight, uh, continue to connect the inner and the outer work together. Really, really crucial. Uh, remember that uh, connecting of inner outer work. This is from uh, a black writer well-known named Angel Kyoto Williams. For us to transform as a society, we have to allow ourselves to be transformed as individuals. For us to be transformed as individuals, we have to allow for the incompleteness of any of our truths and a real forgiveness for the complexity of human beings and what we're trapped inside of, that we're both able to respond to the oppression, the aggression that we're confronted with, but that we're able to do so with a deep and abiding sense. And these are all human beings that are at the other end of the baton, the stick, the policy, that are trapped in something. They're also trapped in suffering. And for sure, we can see ways that they may benefit from it, but there are also ways, if we trust the human heart, that there must be suffering. And holding that at the core of who you are, what when responding, I think, is the way. The only way we really have forward is to not just replicate systems of oppression for the sake of our own cause. So the inner and the outer work together. That's my eighth point. Number nine, we're there. Hallelujah. <laughs> Number nine. Did that come in a song? I remember that. Number nine. Okay. That was for those of you who don't resonate. That was there was some somewhere in one of the Beatles songs. They say number nine. Number nine. Okay. Um, any? How many remember that? Yeah. Okay. So I have a YouTube reference and a Beatles reference. I wasn't planning on either of them. Okay. Uh, so the last one is the importance of the imagination. To really have a sense of a vision that we can actually go beyond racism. Not easy, right? And how can we have that vision of going beyond the social conditioning that's been dominant for 350 years? How can we do that? You know, and how can we really have that as real? So there's an importance to sort of being able to go into a visionary mode. The historian, the black historian, Rob, Robin D.G. Kelly, talks about freedom dreaming. Can we have an image of what's possible? You know, and it's helpful to be inspired by others to, you know, this is from uh, Dr. King. The end is reconciliation. The end is redemption. The end is the creation of the beloved community. 
It is this type of spirit and this type of love that can transform opposers into friends. It is this love which will uh, bring about miracles in the hearts of human beings. So to go to this visionary place, you know, where this is from uh, Maya Angelou, you may write me down in history with your bitter, twisted lines. You may trod me in the very dirt, but still like dust I'll rise. Probably many of you remember that one. So I want to invite a little bit of writing now, just for a few minutes. So you can get your piece of paper and pen or use your electronic uh, device. This will just be a few minutes. And you may reflect on something like this. This is what uh, this is what full justice means. This is what racial or racial economic gender justice looks like. This is what I feel like when we're free. Just let that be there. Have some vision of what you connect with. Some vision of moving beyond the current conditioning. See if you can touch that. So just reflect, let it be there for you for a minute or two, and then when you feel like it, you can start with a little bit of writing that expresses that. And just see what comes. Can you touch a vision of possibility? See how that comes through you and gets expressed in a few words. Take about another minute or two.
if you want to uh, end what you're what you've written maybe in some way like uh, a phrase could be like may it be so or with metta for all beings some whatever comes to you So let's move now to a little bit of discussion and maybe you can start with uh, we invite uh, two or three people if you'd like to read what you wrote. Anyone feel comfortable and be willing to uh, read with the group? You can use the uh, raised hand function. Anyone be willing to share that, what you wrote? Okay, please. Uh, I guess, uh, Carol, please. Hi. Uh, thank you so much for the talk. Um, my writing is, when looking at others, all races, see the softness in their eyes, the kindness in child in his, her heart, to feel the humanness and needs, the wanting of love, all sentient beings crave love, touch, openness, spaciousness, comfort. Listen, hear the person, acknowledge his, her beingness, the life flow. May it be so. Thank you. Thank you, Carol. Thanks for being willing to share that. Anyone else like to share? And you can raise your hand if you want as well, if we can't see you, but the, okay, looks like Holly, please. And yeah, thank you so much for the talk. At the Juneteenth celebrations in Memphis this week, there was such joy, vibrant, dynamic, positive energy. The black community showed up proud and strong and joyous. As a white person, I've glimpsed that joy before, but it was mostly seemed confined to black spaces as if it could not be expressed everywhere. When that changes, when the joy and pride is free to fill the world, we will all be inspired. May it be so. Mm. Yeah, thank you, Holly. Thank you for sharing that uh, vignette. Yeah. Maybe one more person, if anyone would like to share. Yeah, please. Um, looks like, I, is it Dina? Is that, I'm pronouncing your name correctly? Yes. Yeah. Can you hear me? Yes. Oh, okay, great. Um, viewing a group of people and not forming judgments based on how they look. Race, clothing, age, weight. Only look with love at each individual as a person with all rights and equal space for the feelings and uh, judgments that they all have. Thank you so much, Dina. 
we can, I think, go now to a more general discussion. If anyone had any question, reflection, uh, sharing related to my talk and what came up. Uh, I think there's also room if something just came up that's related to your formal meditation practice, that, that'd be fine as well. But um, especially related to the talk and any of the points, request for more clarification or whatever. We can abide with the guidelines. <laughs> it looks like uh, Ruth, please. Hi, um, thank you so much for this. And I, I missed what was point one and point seven, even though I heard everything. I didn't get it worked up. Okay, uh, let's see. Point one was that, let's see. Um, Point one was that it's crucial to connect Buddhist practice with the attempt to transform racism. That was the first one. That's really the starting point. It's really, you know, connected with that notion of uh, that in our times, if we think of awakening as working through all of our stuff, you know, then that would include working through our, our racial conditioning, which everyone has, right? And we need specific practices for that. Because, you know, you don't find it easily. And some, some stuff you need special ways to get at it because it's not always on the surface. So, and then what was the other one you asked about? Um, number seven. Number seven was... Uh, number seven, I, I discussed briefly, that was more in terms of one's uh, action, more from the ethical point of view, the importance of uh, action that connects across uh, ethnic boundaries. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks, Ruth. Other reflections? If anyone else you could also share your writing if you wanted to, but anyone else want to bring up something again, uh, it's fine to bring up something uh, without it being fully developed or fully articulated. Again, this is a, this is a charged and sometimes messy area and we, we want, many of us or most of us want to quote unquote get it right, but I want to encourage um, half-baked ideas if you have them. We can bake them the rest of the way together. Could just be a request for clarification or, or anything. Yeah, please, uh, Joanne. Uh, hi. Am I unmuted? Yeah. Okay. Um, I my writing. Well, first, I want to ask. I want to clarify something, Donald. Your mother was, Bernice Rothberg. Correct. Yeah. Okay. Um, and. Um, 
my thoughts went to neighborhoods um, when you asked us to do this writing practice. Yeah. And I, uh, what I was trying to envision was an integrated neighborhood where no one is fearful because uh, fearful of others because of their race or ethnic identity. Um, the poor are treated with compassion instead of fear and all people have homes in comfort and safety Yeah, and all people are um, nourished with food and health, good health. Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. I think, I think that perspective is really, really crucial because um, so much of the discussion about crime and even violence gets very narrow and mm -hmm. people don't think very much about the roots of crime and violence, mm -hmm. right? And it's, again, there's, there's uh, kind of, there can be aspects of a divide and conquer strategy present, but very much that it's, it's, you know, even around the Bay Area, you know, all the discussion of, uh, you know, reimagining public safety, that's all helpful, but the, it seems like the core is what would, uh, what would it be like where um, everyone could have a, a good paying job mm -hmm. and where everyone has good access to medical care and, and so forth, right? Um, and food. And food, yeah. And, and how do we make up for the inequality of the past? Because, you know, there's, you know, that's where the discussion sometimes goes to reparations. But it's very clear that there's... Uh, uh, all sorts of negative effects from the last 350 years for black people and, you know, different for other people as well. So how do you, how do you get people to the, you know, how do you acknowledge, you know, and some of you know all the history related to housing and redlining and uh, how that is, you know, could be interpreted as taking, you know, huge amounts of the housing wealth out of the black community. And, you know, housing is the main form of wealth that most people have in their lives, right? So, right. so that was, yeah. Yeah so, yeah. so, you have to address those points, and those are beneath all the issues. You know, that's what we would call the various forms of uh, institutional or systemic racism, you know, which unfortunately looks like a lot of states don't want to look into that. So, they have, we have all these laws all over the U.S. It's like the deliberate choice of ignorance. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. So thank you. Thank you, Joanne. Yeah. Any time for one more if anyone else wanted to share? Or ask a question. Let's see. So I can't see everyone, Tolan, but can you? Yeah. Was that? Uh, yeah. Please, uh, Maud. Please. Thanks. Hi. Um, thank you. Thank you for the talk. Um, I. 
I had a question about um, how you would deal with a teacher, a Dharma teacher who is showing signs of racism. Um, I recently participated in a Dharma training uh, that lasted several months. And on our group, uh, the teacher started posting some articles that were borderline racist, um, talking about the use of the N-word in um, law school, in exams, uh, for example. And uh, we've had a discussion with him um, where he was not compassionate. um, And we've tried to make him see um, that he was acting in a way that wasn't skillful and he's he's just dug his eels in yeah it's hard um yeah what comes to me is maybe returning to some of the uh reflections i gave uh for one thing do do you have uh guidelines or agreements in your group anything like that i think that's pretty important to you know at least have a few could have just a few minimal to go into this territory is, you know, is hard. And I think it's helpful to have a starting point of empathy and compassion for everyone, right? Mm-hmm. And um, let's see, are, are is the group sort of uh, mixed from ter- in terms of ethnicity? Not, not very much. Oh, a, l- a little bit, yeah. There's there's one person out of about twenty five who isn't white. Okay, yeah, um, yeah. So it can be sometimes more skillful to uh, some sometimes to have that discussion without that person being there. But you'll, you'd have to make your discernment there. But so I would say have some. Uh, ask for discussion and see if and and specify a few agreements that you want to come from understanding and compassion, mm-hmm. and and know that uh, all of us have the stuff, and also we can't, uh, you know, people have to be willing to be open, mm-hmm. and sometimes, I don't know, sometimes it can be more useful for a person like this just to talk with a few people rather than the whole group. Sometimes mm-hmm. that can be that can be better. And it some it could also be sometimes be more helpful. I don't know. I mean you you experienced the you know all of what the situation is, but I was I was thinking that sometimes it can be helpful for that person to talk with a peer. Mm-hmm. You know, and even though the peer wouldn't necessarily know what happened. Yeah. Um and I guess also know that the, you know, the, the process by which one talks about this is really important that, you know, people can get defensive, as we know, just from all sorts of other situations, mm-hmm. you know, when they re- feel like they're receiving judgmental mind or anger or whatever, people get very defensive. So mm-hmm. it's, so it's not easy how to, you know, and people can get defensive without any of that too. So, <laughs> so uh, those are those are a few ideas. Um, but um, yeah, and I think mostly to lead with lead also with empathy. Maybe you know, 
probably the person was sharing those materials and maybe there was there was a point that actually was skillful that you can recognize you know mm-hmm. not just to come from the criticism but to come from recognizing maybe there was something that actually was helpful that this person was a he i guess was was trying to trying to do and that can again when people think that they're think and feel that they're heard a lot of things can change mm-hmm. so i hope those are a few helpful things yeah. yes yes thank you it was it was very helpful good and maybe if you if you want to and if you go further let me know by email through my website what happened okay that'd be, that'd be great <laughs> thank you. okay good well thanks thanks everyone for your patience with the topic let me ask a question um i'm okay with this being sort of a one-time thing uh it's not an easy area how many people are actually interested in going further maybe next week or the week and possibly the week after into this territory and you can i want you to be completely honest not to raise your hand to please me okay you know because we can go into something which is a little more directly individually edifying right okay how many of you raise your hand and if you if you're not on video how many of you would would like to go into this territory Okay, so I see about uh, one-third of the people. How many people would tend not to want to go, ready to go to something else? Okay. Okay. And so I'm not sure. It's a little bit hard for me to discern what the results of this democratic uh, engagement have been. Uh, because I'm also noticing that some, you know, we... we there have been some people who have not stayed until through the discussion who may not be as interested. So let me see again your hands interested in continuing. Okay. Okay. So I think that that is the majority of people raising their hands. And maybe I can connect it so it would be edifying for everyone. So let me, I'll reflect on that. So, um, okay. Thanks for the, thanks for the d- democratic, uh, engagement and you can also if you want to email me through my website you can also let me know your your thoughts on this okay so let's sit for a moment to finish and see what was helpful for you from the meditation the talk the discussion and any uh, next steps you want to take related to it. Again, if you're interested in the topic, you might even deliberately go into this territory, maybe in relation to news or a video. And just, you could start, one way to start is just with mindfulness, noticing what comes up. So see what's helpful, see what intention you may have. And we finish with the dedication of merit. May our practice be of benefit to ourselves, to those in our own circles, and ultimately to all beings. May our practice and may this morning be a benefit to all beings without exception.
including ourselves. So thank you everyone. Thanks for your kind attention and staying with us. And until next time, you can, if you want to unmute and say hi, you can do that. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Thank, thank you. you. Thanks, Tolan. Bye bye. Thank you, Tolan. Thank you, Donald. Um, the bell sounded great. Yeah, very good. All right. I'll end the meeting. Okay. Thanks so much. Bye. Bye-bye. <laughs>